How many of you are, are a parent that have been in a parent-teacher interview lately? Anybody? So our kids are in high school, obviously, and we go to these parent-teacher interviews or orientations. We did it in elementary, too. And we were there a few months ago, and uh, it was interesting. You know, you're kind of like in uh, anticipation of what you're going to learn about your kids uh, from their teachers, right? Like, how are they doing? What's going on? Like, do, are they horrible in English? Are they great in math? Uh, whatever, you know? And so we're sitting there talking with a few teachers and really having fun conversations. And, uh, and I noticed from a few of the teachers with, uh, with, some, with one of our kids, and I'm not going to mention their names because then you're just going to bug them after. So, um, but one of those like, yeah, you know what? They're, they, they get caught up talking in class a lot. They're like all over the place. Um, they're starting conversations. Uh, maybe, you know, in, in one subject, it was like, oh, maybe they can work a little harder. But then what I heard from these teachers, they said, but we just love having your kid in our class. Uh, they're fun and personable and they're respectful. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe they might fail English, but at least they're high up there on relational <laughs> intelligence, right? And, and it wasn't English, and I'm not telling you their marks. You know, generally, they're, I'm happy about them. But isn't relational intelligence, I think it's an important piece of our life, right? Uh, I remember um, hearing a pastor who worked, who served in inner city Chicago for 35 years. And he was around being a pastor in inner city Chicago when there was the riots downtown and fires and everything. And he would literally bring his family downtown. He was a, he, and, and for, for um, a white pastor by himself, he would have got, got hurt in that that space, but with his family, the police or nobody didn't touch him. And he would bring his family there. And he would he he said this story. And I remember he said, "My kids um, ended high school really low in math and sciences, but super high in relational intelligence." And he kept them. He specifically, some people said, "You know, we're going to send our kids like like forty minutes away to a school." He's like, "No, our kids are going to kind of do school with everybody else." And there was this relational intelligence component that they learned in such a high way. And, and as I think about that, when we think about this whole term, relational intelligence, it was developed, I think, by business people in the 90s, and it's kind of around good leadership. But there's other intelligences, right, like emotional intelligence and economic intelligence or artistic intelligence. But relational intelligence is how we treat people, how we interact with people, how we respond to people. Last couple of weeks, we have been back into the letter of 1 Peter, and the section we started in, in January was chapter, 12 verse, chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter encourages these, these Christ followers in the first century in an area where they feel really like the culture is hostile towards them. He says, live such good lives among your culture. And for these first century Christ followers that feel marginalized, this call to live such good lives among their culture was really important. And Peter, as you, if you were with us the last couple of weeks, and you can catch up on our podcast if you missed it, he, he addresses like what does it mean to be a citizen as a Christ follower. In that time period, just the way it was, there were slaves in their church. So he was addressing slaves. Was it, what would it mean for them to, be, to follow Jesus the next day when they go back? Um, to work and, and maybe under even an abusive master. He addresses husbands and wives. We did that last week. And then Peter in this section that kind of closes this kind of the last few weeks in First Peter in this section, he gets right down to this basic idea of how do we live with each other? And how do we live with those outside of us, inside and outside? So I want to read this text, First Peter chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 8. And... Um, I'm going to read it off the, off the screen. So, so follow along with me. Finally, 
all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Let's just pray. Father, um, God, we long to just uh, get a sense of your heart from this text um, as we close off this section of First Peter, Lord, we, we just, we want to learn um, from you and, and what your spirit also presses on our heart for our lives every day. Um, so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the last couple of little sections in this larger section of First Peter, Peter addresses different categories of people. But here he starts off, he says, all of you, all of you, not husbands and wives, not uh, slaves or employers, not citizens, all of you, Everyone, And he begins to kind of just pour in just this brief moment uh, in terms of wisdom and how to interact with each other and the world around you. And how, how do we learn to follow Jesus right in our own community of Christ followers and then outside of that? And so the way I want to look at this is like inside-outside relationships. Peter's trying to help these first century Christ followers understand how they can live this new life in Jesus. We said this a few weeks ago. How do you live your new life in real life? It's not, it's not enough just to have theory. How do you live your new life in real life? And here he kind of gets down to how do we interact? How do we treat each other, our church community? Uh, our spiritual community, and how do we respond to those, for them specifically, that are hostile to us in our culture? So our inside and outside relationship and how those relationships are connected, and in fact, that the way we do this, Peter says, is actually God's blessing. There's a blessing for us. Who doesn't want to be blessed? I kind of Googled, I think Bruno Mars has that in his song, you know? Hashtag blessed. Jesus do this, and, and I'm going to talk about this later, but this, sometimes this concept of blessing is like, okay, what can you do for me? We'll, we'll see what it says later on. So first is this first idea, Peter talks about inside community in verse 8, and, and he, says, he says these words in verse 8. Just go to the next slide, uh, Abigail. He says, finally, all of you, right, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, and I think Peter's trying to give them a sense of what will it mean for you? Forget about the, everything else around you. Forget about your struggle. Forget about the hostility in your culture. What about you and your relationships in this community? What about you? How are you treating each other? And he says, be like-minded. Other versions might say, if you have a different versions, version, it says, live in harmony. And it sets the tone for all the words he uses in verse 8. Now, harmony is not uniformity. Harmony is unity. 
Harmony is not everybody being exactly the same, but harmony is kind of complementing each other. I don't care if you can put the keyboard up, and I, I wanted to try this. Oh, there we go. Does it, can you hear it out there? Yeah, so like this is a single note, right? Right? And then if I play the same note, just an octave lower, kind of sounds the same, but just an octave lower. If I put the same note an octave higher, right? It's kind of like, it's getting boring now, right? Because you're kind of like, but then if you add like just a few notes, things change a little bit. Now all of a sudden we got harmony. I'll figure this out in the end. There we go. So I think I'm playing like, I don't know, six notes there. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not the best at that. But I wanted to demonstrate that when you have one note playing, it's like, okay. But harmony means that there's these different pieces put together to make something beautiful. And I think you've all been in moments where you've heard music and all these different notes come together to create this beautiful harmony that is not uniformity, but is unity together. And Peter's talking about this kind of harmony in community that we don't only aim for our personal calling and our personal needs, but we begin to see everyone else around us in community and we start to, with the aim of serving God and loving God, begin to work together and serve together and care for each other together and all of a sudden live in harmony. Doesn't mean there's never a disagreement. It doesn't mean that there's never going to be an issue between people, but it means that our general thrust, and Peter's saying, if you're going to grow in this life, this new life, you must learn how to live in harmony with each other. It doesn't mean there's never even reason for disharmony. If there was like, like repeated habitual moral failure in, in a leader in our church or something, there would be disharmony. We'd have to figure out how do we deal with that. If, if somebody uh, begins to kind of teach uh, something that is so foreign to the gospel that like Jesus is down here and not up here, we'd have to say, well, that doesn't really bring harmony to who we are. But outside of kind of some of those pieces, Peter's saying, how do you grow together to be a community in harmony together? And the rest of the verse kind of builds on this relational harmony. He talks about being sympathetic with each other. When someone's sympathetic, they learn to suffer with somebody else. The, the result of being close to people is hearing and seeing and feeling their pain. And it happens in proximity. You can't do it far apart. Sympathy only happens when you're close. Never happens when you're far because when you're far, you don't feel what they're feeling. But when you're close, you begin to feel what they're feeling. One author writes this. It's on the screen. The secret of sympathizing lies in relating so closely to others that we feel what happens to them as something that happens to us. Be like-minded. Live in harmony. Be sympathetic. And then he goes on and says, be compassionate. Compassion partners with sympathy because compassion, you begin to feel the concern, your feelings of concern for what's around you. And those feelings of concern lead to action. And that action leads to unity and care. And he moves on and he says, love one another. And Peter uses this phrase in a few different ways in this letter. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4. Love one another. In fact, that phrase is all over the New Testament. One of the, one of the ways that the New Testament describes that is have brotherly love for one another. Love like a brother, one of the deepest characteristics of Christian community, this metaphor of brotherly love because Christian community is family. Now, I don't know if, if any of you have a brother that's super close to you. 
I was like born with a brother in, in the womb, okay? And so I'm a twin, and uh, I'm obviously the better looking one, but I, I'm, a, I'm a twin, I'm just joking. Uh, I'm a twin, and uh, my brother's name is John, and, and so we, we obviously, we have a really good relationship together. We grew up together, we did tons of stuff together, we played sports together, uh, we got into trouble together, um, we went to school together. In high school, they, they split us up a little bit because, you know, we needed a little bit of separation, but we really have become good friends and share almost everything together. We'll talk several times a week because we've developed this real brotherly relationship. And never forget, I didn't really understand how deep our connection was until we were about 20, uh, about 19 years old, and he went off to college in Ontario a year before me. It was the first time that we split up. And so we drove him out to Peterborough, Ontario. We got him set up in this dorm in this college university out there. And uh, it was all good and fine and blah, 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 fixing things up. And then my parents leave to go back to the car, and it's just me and my brother in the room. And uh, we're just, it was like I had written something for him. I never wrote him anything before, you know. I ri- wrote something for him and uh, handed it to him. And I swear, for the first time, like, we cried. For the first time, we cried in that moment. And I realized how deep our connection was because now we were going to be apart for the first time. And we both wept for several minutes, just both like, oh man, this is going to suck, but also both, both like a joyful kind of, this is going to be good for you. And, uh, and man, at that moment, I discovered the, one of the depths of that word, brotherly love. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to have that kind of relationship with everyone in a church community, but it's this call to brotherly love, to love one another that the scriptures call us to. And then Peter wraps it up with saying, be humble. The most essential ingredient in bringing compassion and sympathy and love and harmony together because humility is not thinking of thinking less of yourself. But maybe you've heard this. It's thinking of yourself less, right? So humility means I don't have to put myself in front of somebody else. But when I, I'm understanding of that and I can, I can think less of myself, I make room for harmony and compassion and sympathy and loving one another. And Peter brings this all together to say, listen, if you're going to live this new life, you need to grow in this, these relationships with each other. And here's, here's why. Why does Peter tie like this, this, this kind of idea of, of harmony and community to one another in the church tied to living such good lives in our culture. Why? Well, I think the first thing is they will not survive unless they have community. These first century Christians will not survive if they're on their own. They will not survive several days or weeks or months if they feel like they're just all these individual people in these silos and they're not connected. But Peter calls them to this unity and community together because if they don't cultivate this kind of relationship, they will be crushed from the outside in. Once, uh, several years ago, I went to Thailand and I had a really awesome experience with several Christians and church leaders from across the river in, in Laos. Now, Thailand is a country that allows Christianity pretty freely. But Laos restricts Christianity and restricts religion. And so we were meeting up northern Thailand at a campground there. And uh, these Christians and, and leaders from Laos came over the river and hung out with us for a few days. They were free in that part of Thailand. 
And I started to see them and meet them and talk to them and with translators and everything. And I began to hear their stories and hear some of their affliction and hear some of the hostility that their culture, the police and the government and other things put on them, particularly because they were believers. And we don't fully understand that in our culture. But this was real. I'm talking to these people right in front of me that that dealt with this just across the river in Laos. And you know what I would often see them doing? I'd see them in breaks Four or five of them huddle around in a circle, open their Bibles, talk about it, pray for each other, encourage each other. When they sat with us, they shared some of the things going on in their heart. They asked us to pray for them. There was a moment we shared communion together like we're going to share later on. There was a moment where we actually like, did this foot washing. We washed each other's feet, this symbolism of, of just humility and, and servanthood. And I, I recognized in that moment these Christians how much they needed church community to survive. Not to be inspired, not to just, you know, have a place to serve. They needed this community to survive because they were going back across the river to Laos and they were going to be hit with a lot of struggles. And so one of the reasons I think Peter really, uh, you know, shares this in this section of his letter is because they will not survive without Christian community. Church is like a base camp. You come together and you encourage each other and fix each other up and help each other and bandage some wounds before you go out. It's like a family, you know, at, in, the, in an evening time when fa- family or extended family come together. You encourage each other. You listen to each other. You, you know, like, you, you, you feel through what's going on in the day. You help each other because there's another day coming. And so church becomes like that. Peter's talking about this kind of support and encouragement and inspiration and accountability. And Peter describes specifically their daily scr- struggles. He actually says these words, do not fear their threats. That's what these first Christians felt like. Later on in verse 14, he says, listen, there are those who speak maliciously to you. That's That's what was happening. People were speaking maliciously to them because of their faith. They were threatened because of their faith. And so in the context of this, Peter is saying, you can't survive that kind of hostility alone. You won't survive it. You need each other. The second reason I think Peter does this is because, and this applies to all of us, the church is a glimpse of God's dream for society. The church is a glimpse of God's vision for the world. See, the church is the embodiment of relationships that God longs for social relationships in our world. When, when God dreamed up of the church. He, he, he didn't dream up necessarily of a per- perfect place because we know we don't find perfection on this side of eternity. But a glimpse, a vision of what God desires for people in relationships. Now it's a fair question, right? Does the church actually look like this? Do we look like this? Does Westside look like that? I won't write a press report that we look perfect, that we're great, that all our relationships are fine and dandy, that we, we have brotherly love for each other. Man, that, this is a vision. This is a call towards us. I get it that we fall short. I fall short. Many of us fall short. But the vision of what God desires for the whole world is seen in how he desires the church to function together. Sometimes we're flawed. I like what Eugene Peterson says. He says, you will find many sinners in the church, but a Christian can't be a Christian without the church. They need the church. But when it works, oh man, it's spectacular. When the church works, when the church is functioning in this kind of way that Peter describes in other parts of the New Testament, it is spectacular. And the world then looks and says, 
this is the alternate society I long for. This is the alternate kind of community and life and relationships I long for. The the world looks on and says, oh, this is what harmony looks like. This is what compassion looks like. This is what sympathy looks like. This is what humility looks like. This is what loving one another deeply looks like. This is what it means to respond to people who are hostile to you and you forgive them. And they look and they say, is that possible? And so even in a flawed, blurred, you know, not fully matured way, God's vision for the church is that it's, it's a glimpse for the world to see what he longs for them. And that leads us to this next circle because this next circle is the outside circle. And Peter doesn't just tell them, hey, love each other, care for each other. In other spots, he's going to talk about, you know, we've understood how to love the world. But here he's speaking specifically to when there's hostility against you, when, when there's, um, there's a sense of kind of feeling marginalized and people are against you. And in verse 9, we'll read this next verse. He says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Why do you think he says that? Because they were being insulted. Why do you think he says that? Because they felt evil against them. On the contrary, repay evil, this is crazy, with blessing. Repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Man, who says, well, first of all, he's totally quoting Jesus. Read Jesus, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. You will see these words. So Peter is immersed in the person and teachings of Jesus. Repay evil and insult with blessing. Man, who finds that normal? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've, I've often heard people say, even you know, in my own conversations, you know when someone's been offended and they want to respond back and they're telling you the story? Hey, my buddy, he told me this. And then I said this, and I said, how dare you? And you know, you've done this and this and that, and, and kind of like this whole big story, and like you don't amount to anything, and you don't have the right to do that. And I remember, you know, you ask your friend, did you really say that? No, but I was going to tell him that. I would have said it. I mean, I wanted to say it. I wanted to just trash him in the moment. I wanted to put him in his place in the moment. Why is that? Why is that? Because inside of us, we all, human nature, have a desire to fight, have a desire to push back, have a desire to hurt back. Have it, we innately, in some way, for some reason, have a desire for revenge and to be viewed as right. Sometimes we don't always say it. We tell our friends we say it, and then we realize we just wanted to say it. But some people really do go ahead that way because there's this inner desire in us that is not healthy. And Peter says, Jesus gives us a better way. Jesus gives you a better way to respond to those who attack you, those who are hostile against you, those who come against you. Man, a couple of weeks ago, we... We talked about Martin Luther King and his story and just a beautiful example of what that looks like in the last century. But here's the deal. Repay evil with blessing. You're called to live this way. But here's what, what throws me off. Peter says, when you do this, you inherit a blessing. You inherit a blessing. What does that mean? What, how would you, let me ask you. If I were to tell you today, today you're all going to inherit a blessing, what would that mean for you? What does that look like for you? What's your, your first response? What would you love that blessing to be? And just throw it, throw it out. Come on, be honest. What would you want that blessing to be? New car. New car. That's, that's honest. That's fair. Okay, cool. Anybody else? What? Warmer weather. Warmer weather. Yes, Lord. Hashtag blessed. Put me in Florida. Okay. Anybody else? What else? 
Anybody feel that if God would bless them, they would be successful? If God would bless them, they would be more famous? If God would bless them, they'd have good fortune? Our culture, you know, and kind of quoting Bruno Mars, is hashtag blessed means I'm going to be blessed. I didn't have to quote Bruno Mars. You can even quote some preachers to tell you that that is what blessing means. And yet, it's interesting because we wrestle with that. But Peter says the kind of blessing you give when you repay evil with blessing is the kind of blessing you receive. The kind of blessing you give when you repay evil is rooted in God's mercy and grace and love. And in other words, to bless is to respond with God's love and grace. But the interesting thing is Peter says, then you will inherit a blessing. What's the blessing? The blessing is actually living like that. The blessing is giving a blessing when someone treats you with evil. To live like that is a blessing. I want to throw this this phrase on the screen, and it says this, the blessed life isn't always outcome-based, but it is conviction-based. See, our understanding of the blessed life is outcome-based. If we're honest, a new car, good weather, a great trip, a long life, success, fame, finances, whatever, the blessed life isn't always outcome-based, but according to Peter, it is conviction-based that we live out of this conviction to bless others. Why? Because we inherit a blessing when we repay evil with blessing. We inherit what it means to live like Jesus calls us to live. And Peter says there's a blessing in that action. So I wrote something else on the screen. We inherit the life we live out. We inherit the life we live out. And if we live out a life that gives blessing in response to evil, we inherit a life of blessing. But if we live out a life where violence is a response to evil, where hatred is a response to evil, you know what? We live out, we inherit the life we live out. Peter says the blessing is that you respond in this way. I was listening to a clinical psychologist on a, a YouTube video this week, and he was in dialogue with a reporter, and, and uh, this reporter was really trying to kind of, uh, kind of corner this, this psychologist and he, he said something that fascinated me because they were talking about relationships and, and power in relationships. And he said, out of all, and really smart psychology, he says, out of all the clinical studies that we've done, that I've read, that I've understood over decades, he said that he said, people like to dominate others. In other words, they like to feel like they won. They like to feel like, like they've made a, an impact, like they've beat that other person. And he said, human nature, we feel amazing when that happens, right? When we win, when we attack back, when someone attacks us and then we can kind of say something sarcastic and like they're stumped, we feel awesome. We feel like we've dominated in that moment. And have you ever heard people say this? I remember like, you know, she destroyed that guy in how she responded back. Man, he put that person in their place or she showed them who's boss, right? Or he left them in the dust. What's that? That's domination. There's this kind of hunger in us in the moment to dominate, And this clinical psychologist said, that's really fun in the moment, but of all his studies, you can't build a life on that. No one builds a happy life on constant domination. It feels good in the moment, but it doesn't build relationships. It feels good in the moment, but it doesn't lead to happiness. No one is happy living like that daily. In fact, it just leads to loneliness and isolation 
and insecurity. And so if you want to build a business relationship or a marriage life or um, a friendship long term, and you just kind of go on that feeling of domination, you're never going to build that. It's going to be, it's going to be down, gone as, as quickly as you started. Because that doesn't lead to blessing. There's no blessing in that. In fact, he says long-term relationships require mutual vulnerability. And this is what a clinical psychologist is saying. Peter's just said it 2,000 years ago. But this just kind of data that says you cannot live like that. There's no blessing in that. We inherit the life we live. Relationships need mutual vulnerability. We inherit the life we live. Look what Peter says in verse 14 down. He says, even if you should suffer for what is right. This is crazy. Just go to the next slide. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. The blessed life is a life lived out of conviction, not outcome. If you're just looking for a life of outcome, that's not a blessed life. But when you live out of the conviction of of building long-term healthy relationships, the way Peter speaks about it in the church and how we respond to others outside the church, that is different. So important. And I just, when I read Peter saying, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed, that means, Dave, choose to live like this regardless of the outcome. Choose to respond this way regardless of the outcome. Choose to love this way regardless of the outcome. That's huge. There's blessing in that, in a life lived by conviction. I want to just bring these circles together as we slowly make our way towards the end here because the way Peter talks about it, he's, he's saying there's, there's value in, 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 in this you know, Christian community, spiritual relationships that is going on, how you treat one another. It's huge. It's not just theory. It's huge. And then he says how we respond to people outside of us is so important. These two circles overlap. In fact, this circle dramatically influences this circle. Because the way we treat each other here, the way we learn the practices of, of, of love and harmony and sympathy and compassion and humility here, it overflows and it helps us respond out here. It helps us respond when someone's hostile to us. It helps us respond when we're in a difficult relationship. It helps us respond when we want to fight back in a certain way. It doesn't mean there's never room for a relationship to end or break. I'm not saying that. But here, it's so vital we catch Peter's flow. Live like this in here so you will learn how to respond like that out there. And they overlap together. And he encourages us to be committed to a few things. He quotes Psalm 34 to help us understand that. It's that long kind of quotation he has in in chapter 3. But he says a couple of things. He says, keep hold of your tongue, basically. (laughs) He says, mind your tongue. Do not allow your tongue to be used for evil. And he, he says, keep yourself from deceitful speech. Man. Like, if you want to contribute to these circles... If you want to live this out, Peter says, refrain from a few things. One thing, learn how to control your tongue. But isn't it true? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've said things in the past where I've said something and I'm like, I just ruined everything right now in this moment. Like I need like seven weeks before I talk to that person again. Because I, I, I messed up. I, I didn't control my tongue. I, I wanted to win in that moment. I wanted to dominate. I wanted to feel better. I wanted to feel good. And I said something, and I realized as soon as I uttered it, I'm like, I just messed this up so bad. 
And so when Peter quotes Psalm 34, it says, refrain your tongue from evil, refrain from, from deceitful speech. You know, there's so many things that we wish we could take back that we've said about other people. And I bet there's things we've said this week about people, and we, may, we for sure do not want them to know that we've said it about them. <laughs> That's slander. So Peter says, control your tongue. Pursue honesty. Not just being honest in life, that's important, but honesty in how you speak about other people. Then he, he, he quotes, continues with the psalm that says, seek peace, pursue peace. Seek peace with a pursuit, uh, like a, a, an, in, um, an, internet, an intentional pursuit. What does that mean? That means that we have to work at this. We have to think about it. We have to step back in the situation and, and actually before we respond, Say, how can we seek peace here? Before we respond, say, how can my tongue right now mess this up? Before we respond, whether it's inside Christian community or outside, just step back and say, how can I seek peace in this moment? And I think the last thing, maybe it's obvious, but sometimes we forget it's love. Because love glues this together. Love glues this together. Love is a cure for the giver, and of love, and love is a cure for the receiver of love. So when, when we understand that, but then here's the deal, we must work at it. Love doesn't just kind of happen, right? We want to love, we know about love, we talk about love, but love actually takes work. But here, here's the thing, I, I get this, not everyone's lovable, right? So my wife and I sold the house uh, years ago in Laval, and a wonderful older Greek woman bought it. So great person. Until she kept calling us after we sold the house. And she, it was, she kept calling us and she would say, um, somebody stole the phone in my bedroom. Have you been back here? And I'm like, are, are, you, cra- are you crazy? Why would I steal your cordless phone? Like, you know, and I have the police, you'd say, call, I have the police coming to check this out, you know? Or she'd say, hey, you told me this about the house, and now there's this. And I'm saying, no, there's actually, yeah, we, no, we, we were clear about this. We were clear about this. And then some stuff was going on, and she, would, like, she called us 9, 10, 15 times, threatened us with the police. And that's not a lovable person. It's hard, right? Like in that moment, you're like, it's hard to love you. It's hard to respond to you. I didn't steal your cordless phone. I promise. You know, I mean, we just bought like four of them on Virage sale for 25 bucks. Why would I break your window and like go in and do that and get the cops involved? It was hard. It was so hard to love, to love her in that moment. Yeah, and I'm sure she's a wonderful person. But in that moment, she was very unlovable. And you have a friend that's unlovable sometimes, a family member, that person at Christmas dinner, they're there, but you just, it's hard. A colleague at work, maybe even your spouse, yeah, they're unlovable. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, but here's the thing here for, it's hard to love unlovable people. Just look at the person beside you. Don't tell them if they're lovable or unlovable, but just, just look at them in that moment. And but I bet this is what you're thinking. You're thinking this, and I'm, I swear you're thinking this, because I think this. You're saying, I'm a lovable person, right? You, you're betting that you are a lovable person, and I know I'm a lovable person. I think there's nothing about me that anyone would not love, right? You can send me emails about that later. But you do realize there's other people 
that are not lovable. You're lovable, I'm lovable, but other people, they're not lovable. So let's be real honest. We all have unlovable parts about us. We all have unlovable traits about us. And there's no doubt that I make people, some people, I hope only few people work hard at loving me. I, there's no doubt that I, there's stuff that I do that makes it hard work for people to love me. Just ask my wife and my kids, right? There, I'm sure that there's things about me that make it hard for some people to love me. And you know what? There's things about you, guaranteed, that make it hard for people to love you. So let's become people who work hard at loving unlovable people. And let's be the kind of people that nurture a community that encourage and make it easier for people to love unlovable people like you and me. So we can grow in this practice of love that is the glue to this together. I'm going to ask the team to come up as we come to a close. I want to wrap this up. And, and um, Scott McKnight uh, wrote a, a little bit of a commentary on First Peter, and I love this, this short summary he gives. He says, when the local church truly functions like this, you know, community on the inside that is loving and pursuing harmony and peace, compassion and humility, and when it becomes this kind of community, and post this up here, it becomes the kind of community, and check this out, and just brings it all together, where people are led to the holy love of God. That we would become the kind of church that would function in this way inside and how we respond outside. A kind of community where people are led and drawn to the holy love of God. And that we would become the kind of community where love, that love, that holy love of God dominates every relationship and activity. Wouldn't that be amazing if the holy love of God, the pure love of God, the robust love of God would in a good way, dominate, influence every relationship and activity. And then lastly, that we would be a community that love becomes known in the larger society through experience. Wouldn't that be incredible? That we would become a church increasingly that that, 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 that love that's at work would become known in the larger society through their experience with us. Why? Because it, radiate, it would radiate out of our church. It would radiate out of our relationships. It would radiate out of our experience. It would radiate out of our maturity and our emotional maturity and our spiritual maturity and our growth. It would radiate in how they see us interacting with people. And when this happens, when this love grows in deep ways in and through us and through our relationships right here among us, when it grows among us, West Side. When it grows among us, when this happens inside our community, and when it overflows in how we respond to people outside of our community, here, we will be blessed. Not necessarily because of the outcomes, but because it's blessed to live this way. It's blessed to love this way. It's blessed to move and work and act and respond in this way. We inherit that blessing. We inherit the life that we live. Amen? We're going to pray. And as soon as we pray, I'm going to, we're going to move into a moment of communion. And I'm so excited because we get to kind of close our gathering with communion today. The, uh, just a beautiful reminder of these themes even in this text. Um, so let's take a moment and pray and then uh, I'll transition us into communion. Father, we are, um, 
God, we in some ways may be surprised at the kind of um, life described here in First Peter today. Maybe some of us might feel, wow, is that even attainable? And yet by the power of your Holy Spirit, the work of your grace, and our response, our, as well, God, our effort, not our earning, but our effort towards this, God, we just, we long that, that you would enable us to grow in this, that we would become those kinds of people, that we would become those kinds of friends, that we would become those kinds of mentors, that we would become that kind of community that lives in harmony, that together with all of our, even our differences and gifts and experiences and stages in life, God, together we can become this beautiful piece of music, <laughs> this beautiful community, that we would, we would experience the joy and blessing of that. And then, Lord, may that overflow and teach us how to respond to those that are sometimes hostile towards us. Whether it's this week at work with a difficult relationship, whether it's the, the conversation we're going to have at home tonight, whether it's sometimes the, the hostility towards our faith in a secular culture. God, may, may you, you teach us and grow us towards that, that we would be ready to share the hope that we have in Christ Jesus when people ask us why we believe and why we follow Jesus. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.